Extra Crispy is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Steve's LEDs. You know, in the last few years, LED lighting has just become ubiquitous. It's everywhere. I've replaced most of the bulbs in my house with LED lights. They use a fraction of the energy of incandescent light bulbs, and they're much better for the environment, and they will last longer, and they can shine in any color of the spectrum. But with the proliferation of LED lighting, there's also a lot of low-quality, cheaply manufactured lights out there that you want to stay away from. So if you have some custom LED lighting needs, go to stevesleds.com and you will be happy you did. Steve has been manufacturing LEDs right here in Covington, Louisiana, just a few miles from this studio, for years now. And you will not find another lighting system out there with the attention to quality, superior materials and craftsmanship that you are going to find with Steve's LEDs. So if you were in the market for custom LEDs, don't go on Amazon and just order from the first thing that pops up when you do a search for whatever you're looking for. That's a good way to end up with something that is cheap and is going to break or is likely going to arrive and it's not even going to be what you needed and you're going to have to send it back. Start with the pros right off the bat. So whether you have needs for aquarium lights, horticultural grow lights, parts, or service, visit stevesleds.com and you will be happy you did. Steve's LEDs. It's Extra Crispy, a podcast of curious conversations with me, your host, Crispin Schroeder. So we're kicking off season four. And you may say, season four? This podcast has only been going for a year and a half. I know a lot of podcasts do their seasons in in yearly stuff, but you know, ever since I graduated college with my big history degree years ago, (laughs) I've been stuck on the semester thing. So it works better for me to try to get 10 episodes out in the fall and 10 episodes out in the spring and actually... I went over my goal last fall, so I'm happy about that. So, on Extra Crispy, we do two seasons a year. Just because that works better for me. But enough about the seasons. I am really stoked about the podcast guest that we have today. My guest is Pete Enns. Pete Enns is a professor... He is an author. He has his own podcast called The Bible for Normal People, which is one of my favorite podcasts to listen to on a regular basis. And uh, he's got a blog. He's got all kinds of things he's been doing for years. But much of what Pete Enns focuses on are are questions around what to do with this crazy book we call The Bible, which is really a collection of books written over a very long period of time in many different settings and genres. And uh, Pete's got a new book coming out. We're going to talk about that. 
we recorded this particular interview at a distance, so the, the quality is going to be uh, what it is when we do that. So it's, it's not quite like sitting in the studio. But So anyway, let's go ahead and head to this extra crispy conversation with Pete Enns. Well, thanks for thanks for being on Extra Crispy today. I sure. really appreciate you making some time, and uh, I, I have uh, been a big fan of yours for many years. Uh, I think the first book I read of yours was, uh, let's see, it was Inspiration and Incarnation, maybe, and then uh, The Evolution of Adam. Uh, let's see what what else. Uh, the The Bible tells me so. The Sin of Certainty. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving something out. And you've got a new book out called, oh my gosh, this is a long title, How the Bible Actually Works, in which I explain how an ancient, ambiguous, and diverse book leads us to wisdom rather than answers and why that's great news, which we'll talk about (laughs) in a moment. That's coming out in uh, about three weeks. Yes, yes. And... um, so you you are you are a, a, a Bible scholar, a an author. You've got a blog. I've been following for years as well, and the only God ordained po- podcast on the internet. <laughs> I mean, who's to contradict that? <laughs> Not me. I, I won't go there. <laughs> you know, people accuse me of being arrogant for that, and I just say, well, how do you know it's not? Who's Maybe you're arrogant, and it really is, and you're denying it. How do you know that it's not? So <laughs> that's my argument. Well, hey, it works for me. So, so how did you, for those who are not familiar with who you are uh, and, and what you do, how did you, tell us a little bit about your story and how you ended up in this vocation uh, that you're in, this, this uh, multimedia exploration of the Bible and faith and all that. Yeah, boy, I mean, I sort of stumbled into it. If you had told me like in high school or even college that I would be doing something like this, I wouldn't even know what you're talking about. But basically I had what you would call an intellectual awakening after college. And I tell that story in some detail in the Bible tells me so, but basically hanging around with a Christian friend who knew a lot about his faith and talking to an old friend from high school who's atheist and just watching them discuss things, you know, very cordially, but watching them discuss things. And I felt like I couldn't really track with it. And that was sort of disheartening to me because I went to a Christian college myself and I didn't really learn anything. So at that point, I just thought that if I'm going to do this Jesus thing, I want to have some integrity about it. And for me, that meant exploring what it was and how the Bible works and what theology is and all those kinds of things. And, you know, not everybody takes that path. Some are moved to, you know, feed the poor or other things. And, you know, my way is certainly not the highest way, but it was my way. That's the, that's what I needed to do at that point in time. And so long story short, I just started reading a lot. And about three years later, I find myself in seminary where I was there for four years and I moved from having an interest in more like philosophical things to church history, to theology, and then New Testament. And finally, about halfway through, I landed on Old Testament because one of my teachers, he said, you know, this is like three quarters of your Bible. 
And Christians need to know sort of like what's here and how to handle it and what to do with it. And that really just struck me as so commonsensical that at that point, I started thinking, I might want to like focus on this and even go to graduate school afterwards. I mean, I didn't go to seminary thinking of doing this. I still went, I just wanted to know stuff. But it was about halfway through, I said, I think I like this. I, I, I like studying this stuff. I like learning languages. And I, I like studying the Bible. So maybe that's for me. So, so did you grow up in a religious home? Uh, yeah. I mean, my parents were European, basically German. There's a long story behind that. But basically German, and I was raised sort of Lutheran and even confirmed Lutheran in seventh grade. So there was always like an assumption and understanding about God is real. But, you know, these were Europeans. These weren't American evangelicals. So we didn't have, you know, family devotional worship time every night and stuff like that. I never grew up with any of that. Church was not a big part of my life until like later in high school when I, I went on my own and my sister sort of dragged me there, but it wasn't at a Lutheran church. So, yeah, I think I had a good beginning for just thinking about God. I always just always assumed God was just present. God was just there. And that's probably not a bad gift my parents gave me, either intending to or not intending to. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I remember, I, I think it was before you released, uh, maybe the Bible tells me so, on your blog, I, I found it very fascinating. You you had a, a series of, of guest posts of Bible scholars who oh, yeah. shared their stories about how it was actually, and, and you shared your story as well, about how actually it was in studying the Bible that you, you moved from, um, you know, an inerrant or in, infallible, infallible uh, view of the scripture to uh, a, a different place with things. Uh, you you want to share maybe a little bit of that journey for you? Yeah, I had this blog series called Aha Moments where people from more conservative backgrounds and studying the Bible realized that the way they were taught about the Bible doesn't work very well. And, you know, it's a common experience that people have. I, I know many, 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 many people who moved away from something like inerrancy, remained Christian and respect for the text, but they were not inerrantist. People who moved in that direction through deep study and very few people that started off like not inerrantist and moved towards inerrancy because of deep study. Usually when you read the Bible in historical context, things can get a little bit messy for you. And, you know, I had my own moments and, um, you know, more than one, but just coming to terms with, my goodness gracious, this is a weird Bible I've got here. This just doesn't fit together very nicely, and I just have to learn how to deal with it. And for me, like I, I, I told this story, this really happened. And during graduate school, and my doctoral advisor, James Kugel, was teaching a course for uh, undergraduates, and I was one of his teaching assistants. He had 20 teaching assistants because it was like a 600-person course. It was huge. And uh, it was about the Bible and its interpreters, and what he would do is he would look at a, a story in the Bible and compare how modern interpreters and how ancient Jewish interpreters would engage this. And can you imagine, like, there's 600 students at Harvard University taking this class because they're just interested in religion and the Bible. I mean, genuinely interested. And he came upon the story of, uh, in, 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 uh, in the Pentateuch, in, in Torah, you have Moses gets uh, water from a rock. And that actually happens twice. It happens in Exodus, and then it happens toward the end of the book of Numbers. 
And, you know, like, that's an odd thing to see twice. And what rabbis did was, well, it, it, it happened twice, but it's actually the same rock. The rock was following them around in the desert from the beginning to the end because they had this provision of food, of manna that lasted for 40 years, but there's nothing at all about the provision of water. You just have this, wa- this rock being struck very early on in Exodus, right as they're starting. And now towards the end of their journey, and the rock's being struck and they get more water. And so the rabbis reasoned, it's the same rock. This rock is following them around the desert. And as uh, Dr. Kugel is lecturing on this, he then says, okay, now turn in your little booklet, they had a, like a resource book with everything in there, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I remember thinking to myself, uh-oh, <laughs> something's <laughs> about to happen, I'm not going to lie. But anyway, he, he turned to 1 Corinthians and he read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. And in verse 4, Paul talks about how the Israelites in the desert drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And it's that phrase, that followed them, which tells us, as do dozens and dozens of other examples, that Paul was part of his Jewish world. He had this tradition in his head, and he probably wasn't even evaluating it. It's like when we say the three wise men, well, there weren't three. Everybody knows it if you think about it, but we just sort of say that, because that's sort of how our Bible is, and that's what the Bible quote says. Well, for, for Paul, you know, the rock that followed them was part of this ancient Jewish tradition that's documented around the time of Paul and sometime later. And I just remember thinking to myself, Paul's really Jewish. And he's, he's like, he's not a Protestant. He's not Lutheran. He's not Presbyterian. <laughs> you know, he's, he's not modern. He's an ancient Jew, and he writes like one. And I, you know, it sort of snuck up on me. I, I, I was very comfortable with like the historical location of the Bible. You know, that's, I, I was yeah. doing that in seminary and then this isn't my first year in graduate school. It's like my second or third year. And so I wasn't really surprised by being surprised anymore, but this just, for some reason, it just stopped me dead in my tracks. And I remember leaving um, the Sanders theater, which is where this class was held and walking to the bike rack and slinging my knapsack over my shoulder and saying, I literally said this, I said, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. In other <laughs> words, I knew something big was changing at this moment. And, and in my mind's eye, the three options just flashed in my mind immediately. I said, one, I can ignore what I just heard and make believe nothing happened. But I can't do that. That's just not my constitution. Or I can spend the rest of my life defending the Bible keeping it the way it was, being an apologist, basically, defending the Bible and fighting against something that, and calling it false when in fact it rang so true to me. So I'd be sort of insincere at that moment with myself. Or the third option, which in in the book, the Bible tells me, so I call walking through door number three. Door number three was, you just have to move forward now and see what happens. And that's the path that I chose. And, you know, that, that's been good and sometimes challenging and difficult, but I wouldn't trade it for anything because I'm not the first person to notice this. There's a whole conversation in the history of Christianity about how the Bible works and what the Bible is. And, and you know, just because I came to the show late, it <laughs> doesn't mean these yeah. things aren't true. You know, it is, that would be very arrogant of me to say, I, I know what I just saw, but it can't be true and I refuse to believe it. So... And then you see, you know, how, how very Jewish the New Testament is from beginning to end, pretty much, how informed it is by Jewish tradition. 
which is like a rather obvious thing to say. Yeah. Says, you know, Christians didn't write the New Testament, but Jews wrote it who were following Jesus. And that's a, those two things aren't the same. So, yeah, that's that's sort of how I, I um, th- that's the kind of thing that really started my whole thinking and and the stuff that I write in blog posts and podcasts. It's It's the question, so what is the Bible? Yeah. And what do you do with it? And those are, I think, questions I keep asking myself all the time. Yeah, I think it's such a an unfair characterization that that I hear oftentimes in evangelical or fundamentalist circles that the the kind of joke of you know you go off to seminary to to become an atheist and and you know like like there's this 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 assumption that you know you're just going to get around like these liberal theologies and they're going to creep into you but I think that was, I mean, even in you sharing your story and even reading other, and certainly even in, in, in my story as well, my, my engagement with the scriptures, I've, I've been in some form of ministry for, for 25 years now. Um, it is not that you don't care. It's that you do care. <laughs> you know, it's that it's not that you're trying to minimize the Bible. Uh, and, and sometimes people characterize these things like, oh, these are just people trying to you know, rationalize their way out of, you know, the Bible, you know, trying to, to knock down the inspiration a, a few notches or all the way. But uh, I, I thought... They're trying to attack God or something, right? And, and, and when, in fact, they're not trying to do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And well, it's, 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 it's funny because, you know, you go to seminary and you become liberal, but it's not the seminary's fault. It's the church's yeah. fault that set you up for really bad answers that simply don't work anywhere else except in this bubble. And if you have an answer that only works in your tribe, even if your tribe is like across the country in pockets of churches or something, if people outside of your little orbit just can't get it, that doesn't mean that they're stupid or that they're liberal or that they're bad. They, they, they just have other reasons for it. And, you know, I, when I got to, to graduate school, within a couple, three months, I was like, okay. And again, it wasn't a crisis moment for me because I was never really a fundamentalist to begin with. I was more like a progressive evangelical or something. But, yeah. but I, could see, I could see the stuff that even my good professors in seminary, and I had good professors, I still felt like they were shielding me from something. And you go to a place that's a, a secular research university with a lot of Jews, by the way, and, 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 and Christians as well, but people who study the Bible and, and they put the pieces together differently than evangelicals do. And immediately, I mean, almost immediately, you can say, oh, that's why they say, that. yeah, it makes a lot of sense. They're, they're, they're taking to account things that sometimes the evangelical world keeps hidden or manipulates or sort of twists a little bit. And, you know, what, what kind of a system is it that only takes two or three months of intense study and a few articles to just start falling apart in front of your face? There's something wrong with that system. It's not what the graduate school, not that all graduate schools and stuff, not they're always right. That's not the issue. The issue is that you're set up to not be flexible, yeah. which means you're set up for a faith crisis. You know, there there was something I, I I believe it was, it may have been in the sin of certainty. Uh, you haven't memorized my books. That's I'm sorry, Pete. I'm that trying. That was prerequisite for me to come on. You know? 
<laughs> I'm still waiting for my copy of your new book to get in. I, I was hoping it'd come in today. Not that I would have been able to read much more than the right. for this, but uh, the uh, I, I know I, I believe it was in in the the sin of certainty. I, I I love this point that you brought up, and if it's the wrong book, just correct me. But uh, you mentioned in there about if you could put a, a moratorium on using the word faith in in Christianity for 50 years or so uh, and, and replace it with trust. Um, that's what that's what you would vote for. Yeah. If I were king of Christianity or something. king of Christianity. Yes. Edict. You know, you're on your way there with the only God ordained podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I say that to really stress the point that. You know, first of all, when English translations, they have to do something, right? And very often where we come across things like to believe, right, in Hebrew or in Greek, it really means trust. That's, that's, that's a better understanding of that, in part because belief doesn't necessarily hold this connotation, but definitely in American evangelicalism it does, a belief system right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's intellectual. It's a way of thinking. It's a list of doctrines. Not that there's anything wrong with doctrine, but that's sort of like belief is a what word. Trust is a who word. And the Bible is very interested in the trust dimension. And even, you know, what does James say? You know, the, you know, the devil himself believes, you know, yeah. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point is not to believe. And, you know, I, I've known many Christians in my life and I've been that Christian too, who's like, I've got all the ducks in a row theologically, but I'm something of a jerk, you know, and like, you know, what, what really, are, are you really in a place of trusting the creator when that's your attitude? And I don't think that that is a trusting attitude, right? So, so that, and that's even with words like in the New Testament, and people have talked about this ad nauseum, but even the word like faith, right? Like, do you have faith? Uh, that sounds like something like, it becomes a um, an overly intellectualized word too, and that's unfortunate because in, in Greek there isn't this thing as having faith, but it's faithing, right? So yeah. and and faith is more of a trust word, okay? So that's why every time you know, like Paul faiths something or you need to faith something, we can't do that in English, so it's replaced with to believe or to have faith. Right. And that right away puts it more of an, in an intellectual sphere when in fact it means more like being faithful or trusting. Because the fact is that in the New Testament, Paul's letters, God, quote, has faith. Well, what the heck does that mean for God to have faith? You know, God is, is faithful. God is trustworthy. Right. So for us to have faith means for us to be faithful and trustworthy. And we can be faithful and trustworthy towards God. And we can be faithful and trustworthy towards each other. And those nuances get lost when it gets reduced to really a list of core doctrines that if you don't believe these, there's something wrong with you. I use the word believe there, right? If you don't assent to these. Yeah. And, and again, I, I'm all for churches and denominations drawing uh, you know, boundaries, so to speak, of what, what we believe and what we hold to. But you know, when the Bible talks about faith, it's, it's much deeper and much more interesting than, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. Yeah. You know, I trust, help my lack of trust is really what the, the Father is saying in, in whatever gospel it is. But, yeah. 
Well, I think the other side of that too, it's, it's not just manifested on the intellectual side. Like I spent my first decade of, of being a Christian, uh, in, in much more charismatic Pentecostal circles. And oftentimes, you know, faith was actually, it, it was almost like this, this emotion that you could hype up, you know, like, like if you wanted the miracle, if you wanted the healing, if you wanted the, 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 you know, if you just like strained hard enough, you you know, your, your, your faith would, would produce. But, uh, again, kind of like what you're saying on the, the intellectual side, it's, you can do that without actually trusting God. And and that's a, that shifts it into a much, uh, more dynamic. Well, harder. I mean, trust is more difficult, I think. But in a way, it it relaxes you a little because, I mean, to, to to trust God can also mean I'm lacking in trust. Help me trust. You know, yeah, trusting yeah. God can also mean I want to trust, but I'm not. Or like Thomas Merton, I have this prayer in the sin of certainty that I quote, where it's like, you know, I want to want to trust. Yeah, <laughs> that's also an act of trust, and it's not like okay have all your ideas about me lined up and then we'll talk because what earthly parent does that to their children, right? Like when children try to, they try to trust, they try to um, rely well on their parents. It isn't like, okay, well, what do I do for a living? Lay out exactly what I do. Know all these mysteries about me, you know, know what I'm thinking at all times, have the right beliefs and thoughts about me as your father. And then I will maybe accept you as you are, but just, it's just, we're children. You know, it's just the act of trying to trust, I think is, is good enough. And only, you see, it's only people of faith who do something like that. Yeah. Like, that's not a sign of weak faith. That That is what faith looks like when, you're not always sure, you know, faith isn't like always being certain. It's faith really comes into play when you're not certain and when you're not sure and, and you're trying and you're struggling. And I, I mean, I see that throughout the Bible too. And I think that's, that's a wonderful thing modeled for us. Well, and that's such a, it's such a freeing thing as, as a follower of Christ to just to, to live in, in that kind of experience, because now it, it, it really breaks out of, it, it really does break into your whole life in a different sort of way. Um, and, and allow you to, to be at peace with God, uh, even in the struggles, even in the doubts. And, and that's, uh, we need that for sure. <laughs> even in the anger and in the disappointment and all that, which people, I mean, you, me, we all, I mean, everyone we've known, you go through moments, sometimes multiple times before breakfast, you know, where you have different emotions and feelings and you have different, you know, varying senses of, let's say, certitude or, or, or certainty. And, and we all, there's nothing wrong with feeling certain, you know, about your faith. It's just that will go away eventually. And then what do you do when it does? do you try to like get it back as quickly as possible or do you accept that invitation to keep moving and saying, okay, I don't know what's going on here, but maybe God's out ahead of me and I need to follow. And, and maybe what's being disrupted here isn't my faith in God. It's this God that I have faith in, which is maybe very small. It's been conformed to my own image. And so these, these times of doubt and lack of certainty can, can actually be very positive things where we're being told to leave aside hindrances that package God in certain kinds of ways, which we all do. I mean, I'm doing it right yeah. now. Yeah. 
you cannot escape this human dilemma that we're in, but maybe trust is another way of saying that God can handle our humanity. Well, that, that's what I see in the, in the book of Psalms. I, I, you know, I'm a songwriter myself, and I love the fact that in this crazy book, which is a collection of all these different genres that right in the middle of it, you've got just a bunch of song lyrics. I don't know. I, that, that appeals to me. <laughs> but, I, but I love that, that there's just this rawness. I mean, you can't, there's some of the stuff from the book of Psalms. You can't share it in church. I mean, it's, it's just it, the language. And I'm sure, and I don't read Hebrew. I'm sure you, you could pull out the nuances of it. But they're just even reading it translated in English, it is you do get the sense of somebody who is not denying the harsh realities of life. They're not denying that, that well, God, you know, how come all the bad guys seem to be winning and I seem to be losing and, you know, I'm following the rules and like, I thought you were my friend, you know, and yet there's, there's just such a, a beautiful thing in that, you know, David is, is working through these ideas or, or other psalmist and, you know, it gives us such a window into an experience of God. It doesn't teach us the rules, but it shows us a window into like this is how people have actually experienced. You might you might want to try this. Yeah. Well, I mean, John Calvin said the Psalms are a mirror of the soul, which I think is is a good way of putting it. And and you, you said at the you said when you started talking about the Psalms, you said things we can't say in church, which of course is the problem, right? This, yeah. That's exactly where they should be said. And I've, I've heard pastors who have like monthly or quarterly lament service or doubt service. Where it, what is, it's not like celebrating doubt, but it's just recognizing yeah. the reality of it. And, you know, I wish more churches thought of doing something like that to sort of normalize the experience, not not to valorize it like it's sexy to doubt. Hey, hey, man, I don't know what I believe anymore. I'm so cool. It's not. <laughs> it's people really in pain because yeah. they cannot explain their reality anymore. They're actually in a place of darkness. And and what I what I so love about the Psalms is that so many of them have these either they're either entirely doomy and gloomy, <laughs> or yeah. they have moments in it where they're really expressing. Um, part of a process that doesn't always go well. And when the Psalms, when the book of Psalms, the Psalter was compiled and it was compiled probably around the time of Jesus's lifetime, Jews were making decisions about which ones to keep and which ones not to keep. And we know there are different collections of Psalms that were found, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. And I, I just find that fascinating that, they have this section, like the third section of the Psalter, which tends to be more depressing than yeah. other sections, but they put it right there in the middle. And they, they, they valued this voice of lament and sadness and doubt and meaninglessness and the absence of God, because this is part of their experience as well. And they're not going to paper over it, but yet we do. Mm. And and I think, you know, the reason, if I may, uh, you know, riff here a little bit, I think one reason why Christians step over that very quickly is not so much ignoring the Old Testament or something, but it's because you don't see that much of that in the New Testament. The New Testament is a different kind of body of literature. It's, it's really a commentary on the Old Testament in a very short period of time around the beginning of the Christian movement. 
you know, a few decades. And the word on, in the New Testament is very triumphal. And it's not long, and this is all going to be over. And, and again, that's a little controversial for some, perhaps, but it's very clear to me that the New Testament writers were not saying, well, we might be here for a few thousand years. They, they were yeah. expecting something cataclysmic, eschatological, apocalyptic, use whatever word you want. And Paul, especially, to come very soon, probably in his lifetime or, or shortly thereafter. And so when you're in this this pocket where it's looked at, we're not going to be here for much longer, you're not going to explore deep doubt and uncertainty on the part of people and their day-to-day lives. The time's too short. It's not the moment for it. That's why Christians, I think, have more, Christians today have more in common with parts of the Old Testament, because the ancient Israelites, they had plenty of time to process stuff, because it was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It was a millennium almost. And, you know, we've been at it for two millennia. And we've had plenty of time and plenty of occasions to say, this doesn't make sense. Mm. What the heck's going on? And so we, we should be connecting more with things like Psalms or Job or Ecclesiastes that bring out what Walter Brueggemann calls the counter-testimony of Scripture. The core testimony is God's on the throne, everything's great, obey, you'll go fine, and, and disobey, and you'll be punished. Then you have the counter-testimony that says, yeah, that doesn't work. it's not working. So you have this inner biblical dialogue going on that's preserved by the Jews later on when they were compiling their ancient sacred texts. And, and we lose something of great value there if we don't just nod over there once in a while. And, and, you know, cause Christian, I mean, you, you've experienced this. I have too, where you're in Christian communities where you just can't talk about what's wrong. And everything's got to be okay, and everything has to be fine, and everything has to be hunky-dory, because with Jesus, everything's happy-clappy. But everyone knows that's not true. Yeah. But, like, we don't have the language to talk about it. I'm saying, you do have the language to talk about it, dummy. It's in the same Bible you keep saying as an errant and all that stuff. It's right there. <laughs> you use it. Yeah. Well, this this and this is probably a, a good jumping off point into your new book, how the Bible actually works. In which I, Peter Inns, explain how an ancient, ambiguous, and diverse book leads us to wisdom rather than answers, and why that's great news. Tell us about the book. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> I really like it, and I wrote it. And it has a white, yellow, and black cover. And it's not the only God ordained book out there, though. though. No, I wouldn't go that. But I do say 
in which I explain how the Bible actually works. I've already gotten pushback from like people don't get it. It's like I don't really mean that. You know, it's like it's just my way of talking about concepts that can be maybe difficult or filled with tension. And I think, you know, there are two things that make difficult theological discussions easier. And one is food slash alcohol. Can I say that here? But seriously, it's like hanging out in a bar with people talking theology is a wonderful thing because people, they're not uptight, but also a little bit of, of humor, especially self-deprecating humor where, you know, like it's okay to relax and talking about this stuff. It's part of our humanity. So, so yeah, how the Bible actually works, it works as a book of wisdom rather than a book of simply providing information. And it's a book that really puts you in a position of really having to own your faith and thinking things through because the Bible is an ancient book. It doesn't connect with our, with our time and place. And it hasn't connected with people's times and places even with, since within the biblical period, because you have within the Bible, biblical writers looking at older things and sort of updating them, so to speak. And it's, it's ambiguous. It really is ambiguous because if you think about it, how often does the Bible actually give you clear direction of what to do right now in the situation that you're in? <laughs> like, and I'm going to say never. Yeah. And I defy anybody to find a verse that this is clear. Even, even you shall love the Lord your God, right? Well, okay, what does that mean, though? I mean, how do I do that? It's like, is it an emotion? In the Bible, it's not really an emotion. It's more actions and, and how you behave. But, you know, or love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do I love myself, which most people have huge problems with? And how do I love other people? You know, like, do I... If someone comes to me asking for help, do I love them by helping them? Or do I love them by doing tough love and saying, you know, I've given you a lot of money in the past few months and you're betting on horses <laughs> or you're not using it wisely and I'm just enabling you. See, sometimes helping people can be simply enabling them and it's wisdom. That's wisdom is in the subtitle. Wisdom is what is employed to help you discern what's the best way to love my neighbor right now. And th- that's not scripted for us. That's another way of putting it. The Bible doesn't really script our behaviors for us very well, yeah. for the most part. I mean, some, you can find some things maybe, but for like the stuff that really matters, like what do I do with my kid? It, it's just, it's not there, you know? And, and you can't rely, here's the mystical thing. You can't rely on the Bible alone to get you through that. Yeah. You have to rely on God. And that's a little bit more frightening of a prospect. And God is not found in a script somewhere. But you have to believe that God is actually active. And, and God's only place of activity is not simply the words of your English translation of the Bible. God has to be present in some other way. And the Bible tends to call that the spirit of God or God's presence. And that's where all this is heading. It has to head in that direction and the Bible actually gets you there if you just pay attention to it and stop trying to fix it. Yeah. Right? If we have this Bible that doesn't exist, and that's the Bible we need, it actually impedes spiritual growth. It doesn't help it. Even though it sounds really pious, like I believe every word and I do every word of the Bible, that's actually not pious. That's, that's lacking, forgive me, that's lacking maturity in understanding just what you find in the Bible where you have authors that clearly disagree 
And we're thrown in the middle of that trying to navigate that for ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it was a few months ago when I think I saw you post something on Twitter about this this new book that it, that is coming out here in a few weeks, and just the title, I I I, I thought it, it was I, I was already very interested just by seeing the title because I I've uh, I've shared this with my listeners on on a few occasions, but you know I've spent the better part of two decades wrestling through deconstruction of my faith. You know, I, I was probably, you know, five or six years into being a Christian as an adult and, you know, was part of a church that was more like a cult. And then, you know, as soon as I got out of that, I was like, ah, I, I, I began to question everything. And I think it's only been in the last couple of years that I came out of it. But I, I've, I've really come to see, I think one of the things that really helped me get out of deconstruction into a reconstructionist uh, phase of my life is I was able to to just completely step away from the the framework of looking at the Bible that I've I've been looking at it through, and and I find so many of the um, folks on the on, you know that have grown up evangelical who are now kind of you, you know in, in progressive circles and that you know fighting against railing against what they grew up with and 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 you know for for good reasons <laughs> many of the times they're still operating within that same paradigm. So it's like they're still trying to come up with, okay, well, uh, okay, well, we've got our favorite verses over here, but it, it, it's still, it's, you know, kind of like the, uh, some of the new atheists are as fundamentalist as fundamentalist, you know, so they're all still operating in either affirming or rejecting the same kind of God. And I would say, well, yeah, I, I reject that God as well. But I do think if you can move outside of that paradigm and look at the Bible, is it's this messy thing. It, it isn't going to answer everything, but it will teach you something. It will invite you into something. It will, you're, you know, the things you are going through um, are things that, that people who've been going after God have gone through throughout the centuries in different ways. Yeah. And you use the word like paradigm or the English word framework <laughs> you, yeah. you use it a couple of times. I think that's a great way of putting it because that really is the problem. It's the framework around which we build our understanding of the Christian faith. We all have frameworks. No one is yeah. frameworkless, but some frameworks are, are really susceptible to rot and they look really nice on the, like you're buying a house. It looks great on the outside, but it's actually a piece of crap. When you walk in. Yeah. But you don't know it until for a few years. And, and I think that's the issue. It's really changing the framework. And like you said, in, not, not to label things too quickly, but you know, fundamentalists and, you know, atheists sometimes work with that same framework, which is like things have to make sense exactly the way they are. And we can't tolerate any other framework. And this is how it has to be. And fundamentalists will argue about their certainty of God and atheists about their certainty of not God. And the problem might be the framework because we're looking at not just the Bible, but the nature of faith and the nature of God in such a way that is set up for that kind of dichotomy, that kind of binary polarization of certainty or not certainty. And I, th I think, again, the Bible is just it encourages more of a pilgrimage or journey mentality where there are dark times and lighter times and sometimes things make a lot of sense and you praise God like people do in the Psalms and other times you wonder why God never shows up, which are other Psalms and Job and Ecclesiastes and things like that. 
And, and it's a framework that's the problem. And that's exactly right. And, and the problem that I've seen is that I think there's a human tendency to not see the difference between your framework and the Christian faith. Those two things get equated mm. very, very, very quickly. And that's, you know, I think in a way that's where a lot of the problems are rooted. So you have to have your theology, I guess, but hold on to it loosely. But hold on to it. It's, it's fine. It's, it works. Okay. It's not, it, it may not be perfect, but it's something that works. But if it stops working for whatever reason, it may be time to say, I, I have to look at the framework. And, and, and it, what, 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 what in my thinking is causing these problems more than, let's say, the Bible or the Christian faith? So how has your framework shifted since, you know, that, that day when you walked out to the bike rack and uh, you said, we're, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto? Uh, you know, how, how has your faith evolved and what, what does your experience of God look like uh, at this point? Uh, are you, and, and, you know, do you participate in church or, or, you know, what all does that look like? How has that evolved? Yeah. I mean, everybody's different. I, I guess, you know, there have been moments of, you know, I guess evolution in, in my whole life and in my faith that if I had to pinpoint things would be very hard, but I know they've happened. And, you know, I think my framework is in a way much simpler and incomplete. It's not elaborate. Not everything is in place. The wiring's not all done. You know, the plumbing's not all done. And it's much smaller. And I'm happy with that. You know, I don't have to know everything. And, you know, I'm 58 now. I just turned 58 a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I don't think like I did in my 20s and 30s because life has happened and family has happened and job has happened or loss of job has happened. And and that just, you know, I, I just, I'm, I've been simplifying without even intending to simplify. And so I guess, you know, my, my I guess, practice and all that, I, I something I'm still working on. I do attend church, I'd say quite regularly, but there there are occasionally Sundays where I just I just really want to stay home and I don't have to apologize to anybody and it's not because I hate Jesus it's just because I might just need a break you know and and 10 years ago I didn't and 10 years from now I might not but right now I just do and um you know I I I just I, I'm more comfortable with God as, as, as having this mysterious element, which I did not have late earlier on in my life. And, you know, I, I like sometimes in the morning I'll get up and some people pray in the morning and sometimes I do too. Sometimes I just sit there and not do anything. Yeah. And just try to be, you know, and well, that sounds wrong. The right words have to come out of your mouth. No, they don't. I mean, what, what if God really, what if God likes me? And, and is really like gets me and I'm not trying to pull a fast on anybody. I'm just trying to be authentic in my life and in this life of faith that I sometimes get and get excited about. And sometimes I don't, I do like talking about trying to figure it out. Yeah. The hence books and podcasts and things like that and being a teacher. <laughs> That's very exciting to me. And, um, but you know, in my own, 
you know, life of faith, I guess it, it, it it's wrapped up in that completely, you know, yeah. and, but I guess I've just, I've, I've tried to, I guess that this is how I love myself, you know, by not putting expectations upon me to be a certain way. Cause that's just playing a church game at that point. Yeah. And right. That's this, it can't, whatever this Christianity business is about, it can't be about that. If it's only about that, then it's not true. And it's not worth our time. Do you find that the church that you attend is is it intimidating to the the pastor? You 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 know that you have a Bible scholar in your crowd. Do you go up and correct him every time he's wrong? <laughs> no, I, it's wonderful. I, I attend the Episcopal Church, and uh, the rector is wonderful, and the people are great. And um, I mean, you know, I have to say, I don't think I throw it around. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's sort of nice when, like. I don't want to make this sound the wrong way. There are people there who have no idea who I am. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I like that. And it's like, I'm just there. And, and uh, the adult forum that I go to uh, usually right depends on what I go, but um, it, right now it's, it's, it's sometimes as few as, as six or seven, sometimes as many as 15 adults. And we know each other pretty well. And it's just each person leads on whatever they want to talk about. Like we have something in African American spirituals which was just wonderful. It was powerful. Wow. Like they're bringing their humanity out to the class and it's not about getting the right answer. It's about just being genuine and very transparent. It almost not quite an AA meeting, although I've never been to one of those, but you know, the, what I've heard is yeah. like, that's, that's the raw honesty. And that's the kind of thing that I, I really need. And that right now means more to me than the service itself. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with the quality of the service. It just has to do with where I am at this point. I do like 12 minute homilies though, in the Episcopal church. I, I like <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You don't need to say anymore. I used to tell my students in seminary, again, this is a Calvinist seminary that I taught at and um, good people. But, um, you know, I said, guys, you got to know your genre. A prayer is not a sermon. But <laughs> a sermon is not a lecture. You need to know the difference when you preach a sermon. If you pray, pray, but don't like mix them up. But you know, the prayers that always wind up being like, you know, a sermon for what's wrong yes. for people, you know, <laughs> or of course the sermon, which is basically downloading information for 45 minutes. And it's a teaching moment and not, and not like one of my seminary professors said, um, that the purpose of a sermon is to make people feel the presence of the kingdom of God. And yeah, I, I think that's what sermons are supposed to do. Tall order <laughs> to not, yeah, yeah. but even <laughs> a glimpse or glimmer, but it's not a moment of intellectual convincing. Yeah. It, and certainly not to protect the doctrine of the church. It's to actually explode these boundaries. I think that we, impose upon God, creating God in our own image, so to speak. But, you know, you can't, as you know, you can't do that in every church, right? I mean, it's hard to survive that way in some, not even denominations, but just some iterations of the church and what we call fundamentalism or like very conservative evangelicalism. It's hard to do that. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So some people have to leave. Right, yeah. and that's not not stomping their feet and whining about it, but just say I, I'm dying here, and 
you'll be ostracized. You'll be maybe called names like heretic or, you know, unfaithful and stuff like that. And you're not one of us anymore, but that's what people said to Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just, this is, it's okay. And, and it's not like, maybe there's nothing wrong with that church. Yeah. But for you, it's just not. And to me, that was a big moment in my life. when I realized my job is not to make churches look like me. My church is, my, 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 my goal really is to find where the fit is. And that's why, thankfully, there are all these different kinds of denominations and churches out there. There's something for everybody. One thing I I appreciate about what you're doing is that there is, I don't get the feeling you take yourself too seriously. And there's a, there's kind of a, uh, a joy in it, which uh, honestly, I see so many of the conversations going on today and it's just like people are, are, are a little too serious. And, and I, I think that there is, there is something that is very nice about what you're doing in, in that you're dealing with very serious topics, but you don't take yourself too seriously in that. Well, I think that's, that's death, you know, to take yourself too seriously. You can take something seriously but not yourself so seriously. And I, and I again, not, this is somewhat simplistic, but I think behind that is a fear that your system is wrong. And so you're not going to joke. You're, gonna, you're, you're in survival mode with every theological conversation because, you know, it's the Jenga tower. Any piece falls, leaves, the whole thing comes crumbling down. And I, and I think that's, that's part of the problem. It's, it's asking people, why are you so serious right now? Well, this is a serious topic. Well, okay, but there are different points of view. Yes, but this point of view that I hold on to is very important to me, and I think it's the right one. I think without it, you lose everything else. That's fear talking at that point. And that drives a lot of how we do church and how we interact with each other. And it's it's just not the way. And, and to sort of model, I've thought about this a lot. I love talking about it. I've learned a few things. I think I actually something to offer, but I'm also a moron and I get things wrong all the time. And yeah. what do I know? And that's, I mean, that's, that's sort of a pleasant group of people to be around, you know, yeah. who really get into it and they take it seriously, but they also realize their own human limitations and, and they're, they're circumspect enough to realize that, you know, they're not the guardians of truth for the universe. Although some people actually do think that. Now, I mean, some people think and denominations exist to protect the truth. That's, that's their stated purpose. Or their theologians yeah. are there to protect other people from getting wrong information. And they're there to protect the survival of their, shall we call it, sect or whatever. And they equate that with the gospel itself. And, and I just want to scream as they just... Just read the Bible, and it's the diversity we find there and the diversity in the history of the church. Like, you're really, this is a total order you've got here, you know, that you think it's your job to sort of collapse it all together and say, pretty much what our church teaches is it, you know. Yeah. And how many churches have you had, or not, not you, Pastor, but how many churches have you been a part of or aware of that probably have something like that, you know, even if it's not stated overtly, it's implicit, like we're it. Yeah. You know? Yes. I've, I've, I've been part of many of those. 
we are what this whole Christian thing has been heading to all the time. And, <laughs> and again, I, I know places that are explicit about that very fact. They actually believe that. But others that don't say it, but it's implied, and you know it's implied when you voice disagreement over certain things. Oh, yeah. Then you're out. You know, you're not part of us anymore. And it's not like, yeah, it's an interesting opinion. You know, maybe, maybe there are churches that would, uh, you know, you, you would really thrive in more than this one and we bless you. And, and, you know, this is why there are different denominations of different churches. It's that does happen. I've seen that happen, but usually it's, wow, you disagree. You're wrong. We're right. And therefore, you're now a second-class citizen. Yeah. Yay, Christians. Yay! We're the the remnant. Yes, exactly. (laughs) We are the true remnant. Your denomination's so small. Darn right it is. We're the remnant. We're the remnant. We're keeping keeping faithful. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, well. Well, we're going to do the the just, just in closing today. We'll do the lightning round. Just a few few quick questions. Uh, lightning round, okay. Lightning round. I don't you ready? Give lightning answers. That's my problem. But I'll. Try. Well, that's all right. You know, they're lightning, lightning questions, questions uh, and and you get you get, you get twice the points for every one of these answers now. So, so I just, just want, want you know I, 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 forgot I forgot to tell you this is, is you're making you're getting, getting points. points. <laughs> oh, is it money? So, is it just yes, yes. Uh, okay, it's money. You you can only spend it on. Things that I make. So, um, do you have a favorite book of the Bible? Yeah, that's a stupid question. Next, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, uh, yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> lost points on where I am. Honestly, I mean, I've, I've said Ecclesiastes at times, but Philippians other times. I really love Romans, and then Genesis is everything. I just, I mean, I really, I don't have a, to anticipate other questions. I don't have a favorite book of the Bible. I don't have a favorite author. Okay. So I'm not going to ask that one. Just scratch that. I just, I just, my brain doesn't work that way. It's like I keep picking things up and folding it into something that's happening. I know. Okay. <laughs> you got me? All right. So how about a good question? Any good questions? Not like Any good, okay. Your- what, what practical advice would you give to the person who is currently struggling with their faith? It's okay. It's part of the journey of faith to struggle. No, you don't understand. I'm really struggling. No, that's exactly what I mean. I know that. It's not like a surfacey struggle. It's a deep one. And to do everything you can to seek out people who honor that and who understand that, that you can be a part of, because I don't think we're meant to sort of just simply be alone. In the, I mean, the faith doesn't work alone anyway. I think it works in community. So, so it's, you know, you're normal, even though it's uncomfortable and, I want you not to be there (laughs) and you want you not to be there, but this is something that people have to pass through. Any person of faith does this and it's better with a community. What would you say to those who are not religious people who don't have faith, uh, but who may be interested in trying faith out? Wow. Um, I would say be really careful (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> try it out you know, you know not i mean honestly because if you're if you're a person interested in exploring faith and and let's just say for argument's sake it's christian faith you want to explore it or maybe you were raised it and and you dumped you dumped this and you sort of want to re-explore things 
um, yeah, it, it, it's good to be around people of faith who actually honor that journey too and are not trying to like think of you as like a notch on their belt or something because that's not treating you with respect either. So, you know, I, and I, I wish I could answer the question, here's where you go. But, you know, ask around and talk to people. In other words, don't rush into a certain setting, right? Again, I'm stressing community here. I think, I think you can't explore Christianity, let's say, on your own just with books, although that's a great thing to do. I think it has to be experienced in what the Bible calls the body of Christ, people who are actually there doing things. And it's not about finding a perfect church, but it's about finding a church that has that framework that, na- that word again, that understands the, the variegated nature of this pilgrimage that we're on that sometimes brings us from faith to agnosticism to atheism and then maybe back again. And they're not really worried about any of those stages because they understand that it's pretty normal. Good answer. We give you extra points for that. I'm trying, man. If that was too long, though, that's not a lot. <laughs> I warned you. <laughs> do you do any uh, reading that is not religious? And if so, what, what kind of stuff do you get into? Um, I go through phases where I like to read a lot and other times where I don't want to read at all. That's just me. Um, read, I find reading difficult. I mean, reading is not easy for me. Uh, I really love binge watching stuff on Netflix or HBO or whatever. So, you know, that's sort of one thing. That's why I get my culture. My culture, you know, I get it, you know, um, but I did read um, Bill Bryson, for example. I like reading like nonfiction, but like entertaining stuff. And he, he wrote this book, uh, A Brief History of Practically Everything. And it's about basically the universe and it's hilarious, but very informative. And uh, he also has a book, A Walk of the Woods, which is his experience walking the Appalachian Trail. So I'm in the middle of that now. Um and uh, let's see, I mean, I've, I'm trying to think what stuff I've read recently. It's been so much. Oh, I, you know, I, I read stuff that is religious in nature. I'm so limited. I'm so boring, <laughs> but not stuff for my work. You know, yeah. like I was reading some like post-Holocaust Catholic theologians like um, Hans von Balthasar, for example, is, is one person and a few others where it's about, it is about the, the life of faith, which is very realistic and, and doubt is allowed. You know, I'm interested in hearing what other people say about that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, during the semester where I am now, you know, teaching and in, in the semester, like all my reading is just trying to keep up with stuff. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> That's the way it is. I just, I just wish I had more time. I do love the, um, the novels of Stephen Lawhead who, uh, is a Christian, but you never know it, which I mean is a high compliment when he writes. <laughs> Here's a Jesus section. But uh, he writes a lot about um, like Celtic spirituality. He has a five-volume um, retelling of the King Arthur legend, which is just amazing. And oh, he wow. has a book on St. Patrick and all that kind of stuff. It just, it's, it's, it's really good stuff. So I've been sort of like attracted to Celtic Christianity through – some of his novels, you know. That is cool. I read the sports page too. And you read the sports page. <laughs> and final question: the you know, if if you uh, had, 
if you had an alternate vocation, what would that be? Ooh, um, two years ago, one of my colleagues, we decided, I decided he helped me to replumb my entire house. So we took out all the metal pipes and the copper pipes and replaced it with something called PEX, which is plastic. And there's a manifold contraption you put up there. Just, I like fixing things and building things. And so we looked at each other, my colleague, and we said, why are we teaching? We should be engineers or something. We just want to keep fixing things <laughs> and whatever. So it's sort of like that. And I, I also watch a lot of like science documentaries like Nova and things like that. And I always wanted to be an astronomer until I realized you need math. And I was yeah. not good at math. And I'm, and you and I, me both. And I, and I think there's some dyslexia actually in me that, because uh, one of my family members has a, a hint of it and it makes sense why I had some trouble with like getting into higher math. But I, I wish I could be part of these groups that explore outer space that send you know, satellites and, 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 and spacecraft through the solar system and out of the solar system and, and being able to figure that out mathematically, you know, and just, I've always been awed by the stars and the galaxies, scared to death of it as well, because it's so huge and just incomprehensible. Yeah. But, but I've always been fascinated with, yeah, outer space, I guess is the way of putting it. So yeah, if I, if I could do it again, I, don't get me wrong. I really love what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, the thing is that if I had an alternate vocation, it would be either building things or figuring out stars. Yeah. And time and space and Einstein and all that kind of stuff. Well, you got 47 points for the lightning round. Awesome. Is that like a <laughs> Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Better than anybody you've ever had. Better yeah. than anybody else. It's like you you run the only God ordained podcast on the internet. So you Exactly right. So I should be getting the points, right? Okay. That's right. <laughs> awesome. Well, Pete, thank you so much for joining me today. It's it's been an honor to talk with you and uh you got so much good stuff to offer folks and uh uh I'm I'm really looking forward. I I, I got on your uh your your team to to get the the advanced oh, the copy of the team. book, the launch team. Oh, so I'm, I'm, I'm waiting with, fantastic. waiting with anticipation. My, the book may be coming in today, so I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading it. But yeah, I, batches, I like the title of it. batches or something. I think yeah. so. I don't know how they're doing that, but that's not me. That's, <laughs> that's Harper one. So yeah, great. Well, good talking with you. And and for those who uh, would like to hear more of Peter Ends, you got a podcast called The Bible for Normal People. Right. And you got a blog. What's the, is it just at PeteEnds.com? PeteEnds.com or thebibleforNormalPeople.com. I guess it's the same place. Okay. So I have a blog and all sorts of stuff too. So. And you can go to Amazon and pre-order the book and, and buy all the other Peter Enns books. and Several copies. You may want to read it more than once. Yes. And you may want to give them to all your friends. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Don't just Xerox it. Buy other copies. Okay. That's illegal. What's a Xerox? I don't know. Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> the students say it all the time. Like, what do you? What do you mean? What's a Xerox? It's like saying what's a car, but anyway. Better than a mimeograph. True. True. Yeah. <laughs> I do remember those. I love how they smell. Oh yes. <laughs> it takes me back. First grade. <sighs> well, thanks for talking, Pete, and uh, we'll holler at you later. Sure, man. Thanks. Right. Appreciate it. See ya.
Well, that conversation did not disappoint. I am really looking forward to checking out Pete's new book. And before we close today, I'm going to say something that I say often. But if you enjoy what you hear here on Extra Crispy, go to iTunes. Give us some love. Give us some five stars. Leave a little review. It takes two or three minutes out of your whole day. We don't charge anything. I work tirelessly recording songs to go on these episodes, editing it, lining up guests. I love doing this, but you could help me out. We don't charge you any money for this. Just show some love on iTunes. Now, if you don't like what you hear, don't worry about it. Just go about your business. <laughs> well, that concludes the first episode of Season 4 of Extra Crispy. Got all kinds of cool guests coming up in the next few weeks. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, may all your conversations be extra crispy.